Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. in Revelation chapter 2. It is significant that there are seven churches. I told you the last couple of weeks to pay attention to the numbers in the book of Revelation. Because there's a lot of sevens in Revelation. Not just the seven churches, but we've also come across the seven spirits already. There's seven seals, there's seven trumpets, there's seven bowls. In our introduction, we saw seven blessings. And that's not a mistake, and that's not a coincidence. It is on purpose. God, in his supreme rationality, is teaching us through the numbers as well as the words that he chose to use. But why these seven churches? I've had folks ask me continually, why these seven And it's not because they were the only seven churches in Asia. In fact, historically, there is no time in history when these were the only seven churches in Asia Minor. So why these seven? I mentioned in weeks past that they are all part of a trade route that starts at Ephesus, where the port is, and then makes its way around and back to Ephesus. But along the way you come across the church at Laodicea. As we were studying the book of Colossians, we saw that Colossae and Laodicea are right next to each other, sister cities. And in fact, they exchanged letters, and Paul even told the Colossians to read the letter that came from Laodicea and to take the letter that had come to Colossae and read it at Laodicea. So these are sister cities, and yet... The church at Colossae is not mentioned in these seven. So why these seven churches? Well, there are a lot of theories 
about why these seven churches. I've mentioned a couple of the theories. The predominant one for folks who like to allegorize the scripture, which I'm not big on allegory for scripture, but for folks who like to spiritualize the scripture, they say that these seven churches represent particular periods of time in the history of the church, starting at the inception of the church at Pentecost and lasting until the return of Christ. And so you could follow almost like a calendar. You could follow what particular years in the church's history correspond to the particular church in order. But there's a whole lot of problems with that. Like the time of the Reformation is one of the periods that the church is most criticized. And so that doesn't quite work. So why, again, why these seven churches? Well, several commentators that I have read recently have made very convincing cases for the idea that these seven churches represent particular (coughs) types of churches. And the more I've read that, the more I've studied it, the more I've realized this makes sense. Because we know that the number seven is the number of completion, So these seven churches would be, okay, the completion of the church. So how does that apply to the church universal? Only in the fact that they represent types of churches. And so the more I thought about that and the more I studied it, the more I went, boy, this really does play out. This is really a good way to approach these letters. Here, let me give you a a quick rundown of these seven churches and the type of church that they represent, and then we'll start digging into the detail. Ephesus is an Orthodox church, but unloving. They've got the right message, they just have the wrong emphasis. Can you think of any churches like that? Well, sure you can, because that's a type of church. The church at Smyrna is the persecuted, martyred church that's being purged and cleansed by the persecution they go through. The church at Pergamum is the church that's way too worldly, married to the world. Can you think of any churches like that? Boy, that wasn't even hard. Thyatira is a church that's tolerant of sin. Sardis is a dead church. Philadelphia is a faithful church. It's good to find a faithful church in this mix. And Laodicea is an apostate, unbelieving church. As we listen to what Jesus says to them, you find these characteristics for each of them. And then at the end of the descriptions of these various churches, and at the end of chapter 3 altogether, Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. So Jesus seems to be implying that this is significant to each of these individual churches, but that they represent more important principles for the whole church world. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So as we go through these seven churches and read about them, We're going to be emphasizing that that is the type of church that Jesus is either encouraging and finds praiseworthy, or it's the kind of church that he's going to criticize and criticize very severely. And then we, just like every other church in the world, are going to be able to compare ourselves to those individual churches. And where we line up with Jesus' commendations, then good for us. But if we line up with any of the things that Jesus criticized, we need to change ourselves. We need to repent. We need to go back, as Jesus is going to say to Ephesus, we need to go back to do the first works. What you'll see as we read each of these seven letters is that there is a format to the things that John was told to write down. Each of these churches is addressed first by name. And then there's a description of some aspect or character of the Lord Jesus that's directly tied 
to the vision of Christ that we read at the end of chapter 1. And each of those characteristics that Jesus picks for himself is something that has particular relevance to the church he's addressing. And then there's an evaluation of that church. There's a commendation for anything that's praiseworthy, and there are rebukes and firm rebukes for those things that are displeasing to the Lord. And then he always gives them a corrective action. Do this. And then the letters close with a challenge to the church. And then to consider what he has said. That's that phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And then there's usually a closing promise. So that's the format that each of these seven letters is going to follow. So the first church that he writes to is Ephesus. We know biblically a lot about Ephesus. We don't know as much about some of the other churches. We'll try to dig into the historic details as we go along so that you get some sense of what the city is like and what the church is like. But we know a lot about Ephesus. And the reason that we know so much about Ephesus is because the Bible talks a lot about Ephesus. It's a major city. It is sitting right on the Aegean Sea, so that makes it a port city, so there's a lot of trade going on. And as I mentioned earlier, you could bring your goods by ship to Ephesus and then via that trade route hit a bunch of other cities as well. So it was a great place for trade. And as a consequence, you had a real mishmash of people from all kinds of different cultures going through Ephesus. So it was a real cosmopolitan city and a great place to preach the gospel from. There were a quarter of a million people living there in Ephesus at that time. Now, it had, the church there at Ephesus, had a remarkable pedigree. And what I mean by that is, just think about the people who passed through and taught there. Think about the people who laid the foundation of the church at Ephesus. It was founded by the Apostle Paul. Pretty good way to start. But he also is going to mention that he left Priscilla and Aquila there. Priscilla and Aquila run into Apollos. Apollos is a great orator, but he only knows the baptism of John. And so Priscilla and Aquila teach him the scriptures more accurately. And then he and several others are baptized into Christ. The fellow who carried the letter to Ephesus and to Colossae is Tychicus, who learned Christianity from Paul and who was coming from Paul in prison in Rome back to Ephesus to carry news about Paul and how Paul is doing. So, so far they've got Paul, they've got Priscilla, they've got Aquila, they've got Apollos, they've got Tychicus, and then we're going to find that Paul leaves Timothy there for the specific reason of countering anybody who brings any kind of heresy into the church at Ephesus. So they've got Paul and they've got Timothy. And then finally, they've got the apostle John. After 70 AD, when all the Jews are cast out of Jerusalem as the city walls are torn down, the temple's destroyed, the general dispersion happens, John goes to Ephesus. So here we're talking about a church that has apostolic authority from two direct apostles, two people who heard directly from Jesus, one of whom laid on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. I mean, this is really good authority. This is eyewitness testimony to Christianity that this church is founded on. They're learning it from Paul. They're learning it from people who learned Christianity from Paul. And then they're getting Timothy after that. And then they get John after that. It's a really solid foundation for a church. And if you know anything about Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the first three chapters are just chock full of deep, heavy doctrinal theology. The second half of the letter is all about how they should behave with each other. So these are people who are rooted and grounded in sound doctrine. And they're rooted and grounded in apostolic doctrine. They're getting it directly from the apostles. 
So you just don't get better authority than that. However, the city of Ephesus is also, because of the trade and because of all the different cultures that flow through there, it is also a really prominent center for various religions. And as you would walk through Ephesus, you found a multiplicity of temples and various different kinds of worship. And the imperial cult had also taken root there in Ephesus. What I mean by the imperial cult is the Caesars there in Rome were so impressed with their own power and their own authority that they weren't satisfied to just be governmental authorities. They wanted to expand their power, and so various of them decreed themselves to be God, and they said that they deserved worship. So there in Ephesus, there were actually temples that were built to Claudius and to Hadrian and to Severus, and then ultimately Domitian, who is the very man who sent John to the Isle of Patmos, Part of the reason that John was cast out to Patmos was because he refused to bow to Domitian. So there was a temple to Domitian right there in Ephesus, along with several other temples to other prominent Caesars. But the biggest of the temples there was the temple to Artemis. You might know her better by her Latin name, which is Diana. Diana of the Ephesians, when Paul and his compatriots were being thrown out of Ephesus, the mob was shouting behind him, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Because they thought that their whole city was being preserved and protected by Diana. So her temple was the biggest of the temples, the grandest of the temples. And in fact... Her temple was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Can you name the seven wonders of the ancient world? There was the Great Pyramid of Giza. By the way, that's the only one that's still standing. All the others have been destroyed over time. There were the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the Great Statue of Zeus, the Mausoleum of Helicarnassus, and the Colossus of Rhodes, and the Lighthouse of Alexandria. Pliny the Younger, who was a Roman historian, tells us that the dimensions of the temple to Diana was about four times the size of the Parthenon. So if you go up to Nashville and you look at the Parthenon up there, which is pretty much to scale, imagine if that was four times bigger, that's the temple to Diana that was sitting in a very prominent place there in the city of Ephesus. Everybody knew about the temple of Diana. Pliny says that it was 425 feet long, it was 220 feet wide, it was 60 feet high, there were 127 solid marble pillars, and 36 of them were overlaid with gold and jewels. Pretty impressive temple. So what I'm going to do now is we're going to take a look at some of the things that the book of Acts tells us about Ephesus so that we get a better feeling for Paul's interaction there in Ephesus, what happened in Ephesus as Christianity was growing, and then ultimately how Paul and his companions were thrown out of (laughs) Ephesus. Now, this is all really important. It's not just arbitrary details I'm throwing out at you. I want you to know what this church is rooted and grounded in because Jesus' declarations against them are going to include that they need to go back to what they were founded on because they've wandered away from their first love. And the way we're going to do this is uh, I was going to hand out a whole bunch of passages so that a bunch of you could read, but every once in a while... It's difficult to hear everybody without a microphone, and we're not going to pass the microphone around. So I talked to Jeff last night, and I said, would you be willing to just stand up here next to me and read these passages as I call them out? And Jeff agreed to that. So that being the case, here's Jeff's microphone. So if Jeff would join me up here. The fact is Paul's first visit to Ephesus was really, really brief. He kind of blew in and blew back out, but that was the foundation 
of the church there at Ephesus. So Jeff is going to read Acts chapter 18, three verses, 19 to 21. That's where we're going to begin. Acts 18, 19. They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent, but taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So his first time through, he taught in the synagogue. He debated with the Jews, but he still left and said, I'll be back if God's willing. Meanwhile, there was his fellow Apollos who was also there. Apollos, it turns out, was a great orator. Now, the reason that Luke mentions that in the book of Acts is because the ability to orate well was a great advantage in Greco-Roman culture. And they're seeking to be what they considered the perfect man. And if you could do that, you could gather listeners to you. So Apollos went around talking about Christianity, but he only knew what he knew through John the Baptist. And he had John the Baptist's baptism. Fortunately, Priscilla and Aquila are about to correct him. Jeff is going to read for us again Acts 18, verses 24 to 28, so that we can understand Apollos. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he had wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So he needed to learn more. He needed to understand the scripture's better. He was a great orator. He had the ability to speak. People were willing to listen to him. And he spoke with great authority. But he needed to understand the scripture better. And so God brings him Priscilla and Aquila who teach him Christ in a better way. And then he uses his natural talents to promote mightily the work of God. Well, finally, Paul does return to Ephesus. And when he gets there, he finds a group of disciples who, just like Apollos, are only familiar with John's baptism. Now, the difference is, John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. That's what John said when he was baptizing in the Jordan, that the Jews needed to repent, but he wasn't baptizing in the name of Christ, because Christ had not yet died and not yet risen. So after Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, Jesus said to go out and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's different than John's baptism. And so Paul comes across these disciples who apparently have been brought along in Christianity by Apollos, but collectively they only know John's baptism. And so Paul is going to baptize all of them collectively If you would, Jeff, read chapter 19 and read the first seven verses. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Well, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was to come after him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. They were in all about twelve men. For three months then, the Apostle Paul taught at the synagogue there in Ephesus, followed by two years of teaching in the school of Tyrannus. And during that time, plenty of people were saved. Plenty of people heard the gospel all throughout Asia. That's chapter 19, verses 8 to 12, Jeff. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. 
But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for about two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons even were carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. After that, there's a, a fairly amusing story about the seven sons of Sceva, who was a, a Jewish chief priest. They decided when they found a demoniac that they themselves were going to cast out the demon, but they were just going to use the language that Paul used, and so they tried to drive the demon out in the name of Jesus. <laughs> and the demon turned and said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, who are you? And then the demon jumped on them, and the seven sons of Sceva ran from the house with barely any clothing left on their bodies. And I think they found out a pretty important lesson about having to have the actual spirit of God, not just using some magical incantation, using the name of Jesus as if it's just going to do whatever you want it to do. As a result of that, people began to understand the difference between magic and Christianity, and a lot of them burned their magic books. Actually, the worth, as we're about to hear, was up to 50,000 pieces of silver. So very expensive books that they decided to burn when they recognized the difference between magic and Christianity. Jeff is going to read chapter 19, 13 to 20. But also, some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom the, was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and empowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices, and many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone, and they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing." This kind of destruction of the magical arts was not good for the idol-making industry that existed there in Ephesus. As I told you earlier, there's all these temples to all these various gods. And all those temples need idols. And so there was a, an industry, a market there for making idols for your home and idols for your business and idols for temples and that industry was being threatened by the fact that Paul was not only preaching Christ, but people were converting and saying there is only one God, and Jesus is God. Now, that's a threat to the Romans, because the Romans, in their imperial cult, believe that Caesar is God. And here are the Christians saying, no, there's only one God, and Caesar's not it. It was also a threat to Diana which is why as they drove them out of town, they were yelling, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And it's also a threat to every other God who isn't Yahweh, a threat to every other religion that is not Christianity. And as people are converting to it, it's a big threat to the idol-making industry there in Ephesus. And so there's a fellow named Demetrius who is a blacksmith, and his entire trade guild opposed Paul. And they formed a mob. Two of Paul's companions were seized, and then Paul left there for Macedonia. Jeff's going to read Acts 19, verse 23, all the way to the first verse of chapter 20. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines for, of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. 
Not only is there danger that this trade of ours falls into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will be even dethroned from her magnificence. And when they heard this, they were filled with rage. They began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Also, some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then, some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward. And having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know what the city of Ephesians is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? So since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. You have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there is no real cause for it. And in this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. And after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for his disciples. And when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. Paul leaves and goes to Macedonia. But then as Paul is traveling, trying to get back to Jerusalem, he wants to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost. So he's got a firm date on the calendar, and so he's passing by Ephesus, and he doesn't have time to really just stop and spend time with them. So he sends word to the elders of the church there in Ephesus to come and meet him in Miletus. And as he's saying goodbye to them, and this is the important part, now that Paul has established this church, now that Paul has been teaching this church all the sound doctrine that we find in the letter to the Ephesians, now he gives them a warning that they need to be on guard for themselves and they need to be on guard for the whole flock of God that is under their care because after he departs, he says, Savage wolves are going to come in and try to bust up this church. If you would, Jeff, read Acts 20, 25 to 32. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purposed with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've established this church. I've built this church. And yet when I leave, savage wolves... Now, they know because these are sheep herding people, these are agricultural people, they know the damage that a wolf is going to do, especially a hungry wolf, especially an angry wolf. And he describes men who are going to come into the church who are going to be savage against the church. And he warns them to keep an eye out and protect the flock from the wolves that are coming. He doesn't say they might come, they might visit. He says, I know this when I leave. 
there's going to be savage wolves among you. Thank you, Jeff. All right. okay. Later on, Paul was writing to Timothy. Timothy is his son in the faith. And he tells Timothy specifically to stay on there in Ephesus in order to deal with the beginning of these savage wolves that are coming into the church. And how are they presenting themselves? Well, they're bringing in false doctrine, false teaching. And so Timothy is there to counter the false teaching. 1 Timothy chapter 1, I'm going to start reading at verse 3, says, Just as I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, that's what we just read about, I urged you to remain on at Ephesus so that you would instruct certain people not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to useless speculation rather than advancing the plan of God, which is by faith. So now I urge you. But the goal of our instruction, okay, this is really, really important. If you've gained nothing so far, hold on to this phrase. Why is Paul leaving Timothy there? And why is he putting this emphasis on sound doctrine? Why does Paul say so much in the Ephesian letter about sound doctrine, right teaching, whole, healthy, biblical, apostolic teaching. Why does he put so much emphasis on it? Well, first off, because savage wolves are going to come in and bring all kinds of strange myths and stories and strange doctrines, so you need to know what the correct doctrine is so that you can recognize the false when it comes along. But secondly, what is the goal of all that sound doctrine? Is it just so that you can have a bunch of head knowledge, so you can impress your friends, so that you can walk around and say, I know a whole lot of Pauline doctrine. Is that the reason for the doctrine? Well, if everything you know about Christianity is in your head, but it doesn't make that journey down to your heart, then you've missed the goal of the sound doctrine. Paul says, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. How does faith become sincere? How does faith toward Christ become sincere? Well, through the knowledge of the sound doctrine, understanding what the truth of Christ is, understanding what the Bible actually says about Jesus, and then adhering to that. But also that you have a good conscience. How are you going to have a good conscience before God? By understanding what God says and what Jesus has actually accomplished and what redemption actually is and how it works and what it looks like, that is going to cleanse your conscience from your own dead works. That's Pauline language. And also you're going to have instruction that leads you to love from a pure heart. That means genuine love, not feigned love, not pretend love. Sacrificial love. Loving the one who is being loved in such a way that you're willing to do for them what is best for them, whether they recognize it or not. I mean, the ultimate example, biblically, of love from a pure heart is Jesus, who died for worms like you. He did it for you because he recognized that that was what you most needed. And so, sacrificially, he gave of himself in a demonstration of the great love of God. In fact, Paul says it, God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. And so, Paul would say, the more you understand of who Christ is, what Christ did, how redemption works, the more you understand about the salvation that God has actually accomplished the more you're going to love each other and love God as a result. So, Paul's purpose for all his doctrine and leaving Timothy there and leaving Priscilla and Aquila there, who instruct Apollos better in the way of the word, the reason for all of that ultimately is to produce love from a pure heart. If you just know all the doctrine in the world, But you don't have love, 
Paul says, well, then I'm just a sounding brass and I'm just a tinkling cymbal and I really don't know anything. So that's the goal for Ephesus. You're really well taught. You're really well established. You have apostolic authority. And the end result of it is your love for one another. Now we can go to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the messenger of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. In the previous chapter, John saw an image of Jesus where his feet were like burnished brass and his hair was white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And in his right hand, he had seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun as it's shining in its strength. And then Jesus tells us what these seven stars and seven lampstands are. In verse 20 of chapter 1, he says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Jesus' first description of himself to the church at Ephesus is, I'm that one. I'm the one John just described to you, and I hold the churches, these lampstands, I hold them in my control, and the messengers to those churches are in my right hand. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is Christ's enterprise, and he is demonstrating that by the fact that he's in the midst of his churches, and he holds the messengers in his right hand. And the threat that he's going to submit to several of these churches is, you're either going to straighten up or I'm going to remove your lampstand. Remove your lampstand means I'll shut this thing down. I will close this church before I will let it besmirch my name, my reputation, and let the world look at it and say, wow, that church sure fell apart. So I'll just close you down. So that one who has that kind of authority in the church is the one who's speaking to Ephesus. In other words, pay attention. And especially if each of these churches is representative of a type of church, we really ought to pay attention because this is our Lord speaking. Verse 2 says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. John earlier said that he was brother to the people he was writing to. He said, I'm your brother in tribulation and in perseverance. Hupomone is the Greek word. And I told you that what that really means is to be cheerful even as you're enduring difficulty and hardship. You're being patient in your continuance, in your waiting. In other words, if you're anything like me, and I hope to God you're not, but if you're anything like me, you get up every day and think, today, Lord, can we get out of here? This world is tough. This world is difficult. This world beats a man to death. And we're all looking forward to that opportunity to just be done with it. Now, I'm also at the same time confident that he is coming. And because I'm looking forward to it, I can wait patiently and I can wait cheerfully even though it's hard. That's the Greek word, hupomone. And so here, Jesus says, I know your toil. And that Greek word means a toil to exhaustion. I know how hard you're working. And I know your perseverance. I know how you're putting up with this world, this city, all these gods, all the persecution, I know what you're going through. That's really good to know because every once in a while, I get this sense that I'm alone in this battle. Every once in a while, I, I just throw my arms out, stare up at the sky and say, what? What do you want from me? It's good to know that he knows your toil. He knows your perseverance. He knows the difficulty of this world. 
and he recognizes it. I know that you cannot endure evil men. Paul told the church at Ephesus, when I leave, the wolves are coming. Fortunately, the wolves didn't seem to be able to get a real inroad in Ephesus because Jesus himself says, I know that the evil men have come and you don't endure them. You don't put up with them. And you put to the test those that call themselves apostles. Why would that be the case there in, in Ephesus? Well, because they were established on apostles. They were taught by apostles. They were taught by Paul. They were taught by Timothy. They were taught by John. So then if somebody else wants to get a foothold there in Ephesus, they've got to claim that they have equal authority with Paul and Timothy and John. So of course they're going to say, I'm an apostle too. All that word apostle means is sent one. I was sent by God. God sent me to tell you this. Yes, Paul may have told you something. Yes, John may have told you something. But I say, and then they'll make up some crazy thing that you don't find in the apostolic record anywhere. So what does the church at Ephesus do? They do something I wish many more churches would do. They put it to the test. And what did they use as the standard to test them against? The word of God that already stands the teaching of the apostles, the pure and genuine word that they have already received, that becomes their standard. And then if anybody comes in and says some wacky, crazy thing, they recognize it because they already know what the true sound doctrine is. And Jesus compliments them for that. I know that you cannot endure evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance, hupomone. You have this tridness to you. You continue on in the faith, even against the persecution that's coming against you. And you've endured all of that for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. That's really an astounding compliment. Jesus says you've carried on in my name, in defending my authority, in defending my honor, you have carried on in this Christian faith and have not grown weary in your well-doing. Boy, I hope that's said of us. That even in light of the persecutions, even in light of the difficulty, even in light of the fact, stop me here if you disagree, that the world is stupid right now. Everything in the world makes no sense to me. And yet, we show up here Sunday by Sunday, Wednesday by Wednesday. We keep looking into the word and we keep persevering. And we keep dedicating ourselves to sound doctrine. And Jesus compliments the church at Ephesus for being like that. And you have that perseverance. And you have endured for my name's sake. And you've not grown weary but I have this against you. Okay, you know your doctrine. You really know your doctrine well. You really studied up on the sound doctrine that Paul has taught you. And yet, part of what Paul taught in Ephesians 1, for instance, verses 15 and 16, Paul wrote, for this reason, I too have heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for one another. Paul commended them for that. Paul writing to this church in Ephesus says, yeah, you know the doctrine and you have faith in the Lord. But I also hear about your love one for the other. I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. In Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16, again, writing to this same church, Paul says that you're to speak the truth in love. But speaking the truth in love, that's a very important statement. Some people use the truth of the Bible as a battering ram to hurt people with because they don't have adequate love to go with their sound doctrine. And they damage people that way. 
The instruction is speak the truth in love. In fact, if you look at it in the Greek, and Steve can correct me if he wants, it's actually truthing, which is just a verb we don't have in the English language, truthing in love. So love is an intricate part, an essential part of speaking the truth. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth in the body for the building up of itself in love. Paul keeps emphasizing, be loving as you're growing in doctrine, as you're growing in understanding the grace of God, as you're understanding your faith in Christ, as you're enduring as a Christian in this world, remember that an essential part of it, the goal of it, the purpose for our instruction is ultimately love. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Still Paul writing to this church at Ephesus, therefore be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love. You'll notice that Paul did not say, and walk in doctrine. And the Ephesian letter, the first three chapters, are all doctrine, 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 lots of heavy-duty, sound doctrine. But in the end, Paul said, but walk in love, because the purpose of our instruction, the purpose of our doctrine is love, that you would love one another, that you would love God. In fact, the example he gives here in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 is, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you, an offering and a sacrifice to God and a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sign of worship to God, the way that Christ, out of sacrifice, loved you all the way to death, He says, that's the way you ought to sacrificially love one another. That's the whole point of the doctrine. That's the whole point of the teaching. If you understand all the doctrine that Paul has written and it doesn't result in love, you don't understand the doctrine yet. And yet, Jesus says, I have this against you. The church in Ephesus, the very church that has all this doctrine, the very church that has all this instruction in love, the very church that Paul wrote and said, I've heard about your love for one another, and that's why I'm writing to you and I pray for you, but I'm warning you, ravenous wolves are coming. And Jesus says, I know you didn't fall doctrinally, but you fell in this. You left your first love. And that's an indictment. The word there, the Greek word for left, is a word that sometimes means to forgive. It means if somebody has done something against you, you let go of it. And that sense of letting go is what they've done with their first love. They've just let go of it. So the Ephesian church had so aggressively tried to maintain doctrinal purity, and so we would all compliment them for that. Jesus even complimented them for that. You've listened to the ones who said they were apostles. They're not. You prove they were liars. But even in your doctrinal purity, you've neglected the practice of brotherly love. And those are both vitally important parts of genuine biblical Christianity. Now let's think about this for a moment historically. The Apostle Paul who wrote the letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul who left Timothy there in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul who instructed Priscilla and Aquila, the Apostle Paul who baptized in the name of Christ, the Apostle Paul who is the founder of this church in Ephesus He died in 67 A.D. John is writing somewhere in the mid-90s A.D. How long did it take them to go from a church that Paul would compliment for their love to Jesus decrying the fact that they'd lost their love? I mean, that's very, very quick. That that church went from being the church that was complimented for how loving they were 
how much fellowship they had in Jesus Christ for defending the honor in the name of Jesus Christ within 30 years lost it what does that tell you it means you got to hang on to it, it means you got to cling to it you got to work for it if you let it go if you neglect it it will disappear on you I know so many and I'm sure you do too I know so many doctrinally sound churches that go by nicknames like the frozen chosen why do they call them that because there's no expression of emotion among them there's no expression of love or sacrifice between them they've got all the I's dotted they got all the T's crossed they got all their doctrine correct but when it comes to loving the Saints that's where they fail that's a type of church that Jesus corrects all right let's read the end of the letter verse 4 but I have this against you that you've left your first love so what do you do what's the correction for that remember therefore from where you've fallen remember who you used to be just 30 years ago remember the way you were founded remember the love that was among your church in the beginning remember therefore from where you have fallen and then repent and do the deeds that you did at the first and what were those deeds sacrificial love for each other taking care of each other doing the stuff that demonstrated love for one another repent change your way change your mind and do the deeds that you did at first or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent by the way none of these seven churches that we're going to read about still exist today they all used to be in what is modern-day Turkey Turkey is a predominantly Muslim country now and none of these churches exist anymore he took away their lampstand I will take your lampstand out of its place unless you repent and yet this one thing you do have now this is interesting I have this one thing that you do have you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans which I also hate now by the way this gives you a new perspective on meek and mild gentle sheep carrying Jesus he hates stuff there are things that he says plainly I hate that and yet there are churches we're going to read about one of them in the weeks ahead who actually tolerate failure in the church and doctrine in the church that shouldn't be there at least the church at Ephesus recognized the Nicolaitan doctrine when they saw it and said no no way we're not doing that so let's talk about what the deeds of the Nicolaitans are and then we'll call it a morning the first very popular view that came from Arrhenius in his book against heresies and it was also shared by Tertullian he wrote about it in his prescription against the heretics they say that back in Acts 6 5 and this is true in Acts 6 5 there are seven deacons that are chosen and one of them is a man named Nicholas he was declared to be a proselyte of Antioch which means that he was not Jewish so Arrhenius and Tertullian say that this Nicholas was the founder of a sect that went by the name Nicolaitans he said that the Nicolaitans promoted fornication sexual impurity within the church and a compromising position on eating food sacrificed to idols and that it led to unrestrained carnal lifestyle within the church oh gee can anybody think of any churches that are kind of like that because I can churches that are not willing to stand against the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and say no we're not going to have that kind of impurity within our church Clement of Alexandria declared that Nicholas was a man of strong passions and principles who was willing to and these are his words to do violence to the flesh but he was unable to conceive of the higher ideal of the flesh 
being subdued by the Spirit. As I said, when we get to the church at Pergamos, you're going to see it mentioned again. Some people have likened them to the liberals. Some have likened them to the modernists who just feel like the church is too strict. And so they compromise. That would be the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. But then there's a second view of what this word Nicolaitans means. And this one I find really interesting. And Tom will know all the reasons why. The Greek word that is translated Nicolaitans is a combination of two words. Nico is defined as a conquest or a victory over other people. The word lai, laos, means the people. It's why in many churches you will hear a difference between the clergy and the laity. That's where they get that. We're the clergy, we're the leaders of the church, we're the ones in the robes, you can recognize us, we're the best lit loudest people in the room. And then there's all of you, the unwashed laity, who are not part of the high and mighty at the front of the room. And so the word Nicolaitan literally means conquer the people. Now in a church setting, we're talking about people who set themselves up to rule over your life and rule over the faith of the other church members. The Apostle Peter, writing to the church in chapter 5, verse, verses 1 to 3 of First Peter, he writes this, The elders who are among you, I exhort you, even as a fellow elder, feed the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, but not by compulsion, but willingly, not in fondness for dishonest gain, but with an eager attitude not as exercising lordship as if the people were your possessions, but by being an example to the flock of God. So even in the Bible it says, don't be like the Nicolaitans. If you're leading the church, don't lord it over the people in the church. Lead by example. The reason that I know that Paul, Paul, you're Paul now. (laughs) The reason that I know that Tom is going to relate to what I was just saying, is because he and I come out of a church in Los Angeles where the Nicolaitan spirit ran rampant. In fact, the pastor used to say, what's the point of having sheep if you can't fleece them? He literally said that from the pulpit. Yeah. Okay, that's exactly what Jesus is complimenting the church at Ephesus for. He says, you do have this. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and importantly, Jesus says, and I hate it. So whether we're talking about an episcopate, whether we're talking about a papacy, whether we're talking about any kind of church structure that creates a hierarchical system where there are the mighty and powerful and important people at the top, and then just the people down below who are ruled, who are controlled by the people in the hierarchy, that is the Nicolaitan doctrine, the Nicolaitan deeds. And Christ Jesus says, I hate it. That's an important thing to recognize. If Jesus says, I hate it, don't do it. Is that obvious enough? And finally, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Okay, now that reaches all the way back, obviously, to the Garden of Eden and the tree of life. After Adam and Eve had eaten from the tree that God said, don't eat from, the knowledge of good and evil. They were driven out of the garden specifically so they wouldn't have access to the tree of life. God cut humanity off from the tree of life. Turn to Revelation 22. You're already there in Revelation. Revelation 22, the very last chapter of the book. John in his vision says, starting at verse 1, he showed me, a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, 
coming from the throne of God and from the Lamb. It came right down the middle of the street, and on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, you've lost your first love. You've lost your love for each other, and that's a demonstration that you've lost your love for me. Repent. Go back and do the first deeds, and if you overcome, I will grant you to eat from that tree of life that flows from the river of life, that is nourished by the river of life. And you'll be in the new Jerusalem having eternal life. So not only does Jesus correct the church, but he certainly gives them adequate inducement to repent and do it correctly. That is John's letter to the church at Ephesus. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.